Chapter 6 of Niqua, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Niqua, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Section 7, Chapter 6, Sailing South. As we again proceeded south, the weather became more and more spring-like, and the air more invigorating. The climate seemed to have the opposite effects on different temperaments. The more delicate and refined were stimulated to greater vigor and endurance, while the most powerful physically were stricken with a fever attended by acute pains. This reduced our small crew to a point where we were helpless. Our coal was also exhausted. The light breezes which had enabled us to utilize the sails now ceased entirely, and we lay becalmed. For weeks the Ice King lay idly on the bosom of this most placid ocean. So monotonous it became that even an arctic gale would have been a most agreeable diversion by enabling us to move. With a supply of fuel our chances of finding land would have been increased manifold. We could have made some headway, notwithstanding the fact that we had, at this time, only five persons able to render any efficient service. These were Captain Gonneau, Battelle, Houston, Mike Gallagher, and myself. Pat O'Brien and the two Norwegians, Leif and Eric, were scarcely able to move around, and the three sailors that had been left by us by Battelle, while exploring the ice-field, because they were not able to stand the exposure, were now utterly helpless, and not expected to live from hour to hour. We had plenty of provisions for an indefinite period, and when these were exhausted, the sea would furnish an unlimited supply of fish. Our vessel was seaworthy, and there was seemingly no possible danger of a storm, and yet our condition was most depressing. The ocean currents were drifting us slowly along towards the south, and might eventually bring us to land. But this hope, at best, was only a bare possibility. These same currents might carry us into the ice-fields at the South Pole, which in our present disabled condition meant almost certain destruction. We dropped bottles into the sea containing dispatches, stating our condition, and describing our location as nearly as possible. But the chances were that these would never reach a people who would understand their purport, and be able and willing to offer us any assistance. All these considerations, added to the sickness of our most sturdy seamen, had a most depressing effect, and every hour the outlook became more hopeless. With these gloomy forebodings I had become discouraged indeed. I am naturally hopeful, but now all hopes seem to be gone. As I look back to this period, I regard it as certainly the darkest of my life. Early one morning I had gone upon the upper deck, hoping that the fresh air might brace me up and revive my drooping energies. In my mind, with my notebook before me, I mentally reviewed the leading incidents of our voyage on this unknown ocean. According to my reckoning, we had escaped from the ice on the 23rd of September, sketched the island and tower on the 24th and 25th, set sail, as we supposed, for the North Pole. Without having consciously changed our course, five days later we found ourselves sailing south. We then, under a full head of steam, changed our course to the northeast, and circumnavigated a large expanse of sea surrounding the pole. 
When we again attempted to cross this open sea, we again found ourselves sailing south. We landed on a barren island on the 1st of November. In a few days we were becalmed, but in the grasp of a powerful current which carried us steadily southward. And now, on the 25th of December, when Christmas festivities were the order of the day throughout the Christian world, here we were on a broad ocean, drifting we knew not whither. I never felt so utterly devoid of hope, but I was determined to keep up courage. We were in a most agreeable climate. The air was sweet and refreshing, and I thought, if we could only find land, what a glorious discovery we had made, and if we could convey the news to our own country, how it would stimulate the latent energies of the whole people to find some ready means of access to this inner world, and thus our perils and privations might ultimately prove a blessing to mankind. But why speculate? We were lost on an unknown ocean which seemed to be boundless, and utterly unable to direct our movements. The thought struck me with a chill. Suddenly, in the midst of my cogitations, I was startled by a loud, Hello! It was certainly near at hand. I sprang to my feet and looked around over the placid surface of the ocean. I could see for leagues away in every direction, yet could not discover any living thing. I then started to go below, thinking that perhaps Captain Gonneau had called me. As I disappeared, the Hello! was repeated in a somewhat louder tone. I met the captain coming in search of me, and I told him what I had heard. With an incredulous look on his face, he placed his hand on my head and said, "'I fear, my dear Jack, that your brain has played a trick on you.' "'That may be so,' I said, "'but let us go above and investigate before we jump to conclusions.' He assented, and as we reached the deck, the hello was repeated in a much louder tone than before, and this time apparently directly over our heads." We looked up, and about one hundred feet above our starboard quarter we beheld what, at first sight, appeared to be some monster bird, with outspread wings slowly moving as if to maintain its position. But a second glance revealed it to be some kind of an aerial conveyance, with transparent sides, through which we could plainly see two persons on board, who were watching us with intent interest. "'Well, Jack, what do you think of it?' asked the captain. I hardly know, I replied, but this seeming monster bird is some kind of a contrivance for navigating the air, and it has passengers on board who evidently want to communicate with us. Our colloquy was brought to a summary conclusion by one of our aerial visitors addressing us in a strangely musical but unknown tongue. We were astonished at the salutation, but we had had so many strange experiences lately that we did not lose our self-possession, and Captain Gonneau responded at once by inviting them to come on board. They did not seem to understand, and after a moment's pause, he beckoned to them. They understood the gesture, and after a short consultation, their strange vessel began to circle around in a spiral, and came to rest on deck, when a side door opened, and two of the finest-looking people I had ever seen stepped out and shook hands with us. They were large, very fair, and looked almost exactly alike. One of them, who seemed to be the leader, presented a paper which I recognized as one of the dispatches which we had committed to the care of the winds a few days after our escape from the ice. I was surprised to see written below it, in strange characters, what seemed to be a translation, and this was signed, Mac, in a plain round hand. We examined it closely, and handing it back, Captain Gonneau turned to me and exclaimed, "'Thank God! English is understood by some people in this inner world. This removes our greatest difficulty. We can get acquainted.' 
Our visitors seemed pleased when they saw that we recognized the dispatch, and the leader at once stepped to the larboard side of the ship and waved a handkerchief. I now noticed for the first time that two other airships hovered near, and one of them immediately responded to the signal and came alongside. After a brief consultation with the occupants, it began to circle around and ascend until it had attained a great height, when it darted off at an amazing speed toward the west. I had noticed that these aerial conveyances both ascended and descended by circling around in a spiral. While this was going on, I took a special notice of our visitors. They wore soft felt hats, slightly turned up at the side, with broad silver bands. Their hair was parted in the middle, and hung in ringlets to their shoulders. They wore embroidered slippers with silk stockings, and pants that fastened just below the knee, attached to a loose waist with a short skirt. Around the waist was a broad silken girdle, fastened in front by a silver buckle, and tied behind in a bow, the ends deeply fringed, and hanging even with the bottom of the skirt. Their necks were bare, but encircled by a golden chain, to which was attached what seemed to be diamond-set lockets, and at their girdles they wore watches of magnificent workmanship. While they were conferring with the occupants of the other airship, Captain Gano said to me, "'These persons are surely women!' And added Battelle, who had just come on deck, "'What beauties! Where did they come from?' "'They came through the air in yonder little vessel,' said the captain, "'and they seem to have been looking for us, as they have one of the dispatches we sent out after we escaped from the ice. And more than that, it's been translated into an unknown tongue, by someone who signs the name of Mac.' "'Then they are our saviors,' said Battelle. "'I certainly feel so,' said the captain, "'and they have evidently made up their minds to stay a while, for some purpose.' "'No doubt,' replied Battelle. "'See, they are sending that other bird off for help. "'They understand what they are about.' "'As the airship disappeared from view, "'our strange visitors returned to where we were standing, "'and seeing Captain Battelle, "'the leader advanced and gracefully extended her hand. "'Her unaffected and cordial manner "'at once placed us at ease. "'They had now manifested a disposition to examine the ship, "'and seemed by their motions to confer with each other about it pointing to the smoke-stacks, the sails, and steering apparatus, as if they were discussing the motor-power. Observing their evident interest in these things, Captain Gannot suggested that Battelle and myself should conduct them over the ship, while he would attend to having a breakfast prepared that would be a credit to the Ice King. Thus prompted, we motioned our visitors to accompany us below, which they seemed pleased to do. We took them through the engine-room, and pointed out such portions of the machinery as we felt would interest them the most. We showed them our liberal supply of scientific instruments, maps, charts, etc. I was astonished at the keen interest they manifested in our large library. We then led them into the presence of our six sailors. Sympathy was plainly depicted on their countenances, as they passed from one to another and cordially grasped their hands, frequently conferring with each other in low tones, as if planning for their relief. In the meantime, Mike Gallagher, who in our disabled condition was nurse, cook, and general factotum, had prepared an ample repast, in which our guests participated with evident relish. While we were enjoying our meal, I noticed that our visitors were observing me closely, and then looking at the others, as if making a comparison, and mentally taking notes. When we had arisen from the table, the one who had presented the dispatch came up, and pointed to the signature, as if to ask if it was mine. 
I nodded assent, and she took me by the hand, and drawing it through her arm, led off toward the deck and conducted me directly to her airship. I noticed now, for the first time, that the entrance was about thirty inches above the deck, where it rested, and was approached by steps so constructed that they dropped to their place when the door was opened. We entered, and I found it to be a splendidly upholstered car, about six feet wide by sixteen in length, coming to a sharp point at the bow, while the stern was oval. I could see by a glance at its proportions that it was designed to dart through the air at a great speed. But I had no time to take many notes of this small but elaborately finished vessel. The proprietor, so to speak, at once opened a little bookcase, and handed me a small volume with a knowing smile on her face. To my surprise, I found it to be a school history of the United States in English, with a translation, presumably into her own language, printed in parallel columns. She handed me several other volumes printed in the same manner in both languages. Among these I noticed a grammar, dictionary, small geography, a New Testament, hymn-book, and several introductory works on the natural sciences. She showed me a card on which was printed the English alphabet, that had evidently never been used, and opposite each letter a varying number of characters, corresponding with the number of sounds which we assigned to each. I understood from this that the people of this country use phonetic characters. I at once realized that she had the means of acquiring a knowledge of our language, history, geography, and science as taught in our common schools. I surmised that this collection of school books had been brought to this country on a vessel that was lost near the barren island on which we had stopped. It was just such a collection as might be expected among sailors who were trying to obtain the rudiments of an education while employed on a whaler. She had doubtless shown me these books as a means of letting me know that our country and its language were not entirely unknown in her country, and that she had contemplated making a study of these things. We were soon joined by her comrade, Battelle, and Houston, and this unique library of outer-world schoolbooks was again exhibited. And while we could not exchange a word, we soon felt that we were old acquaintances. Our visitors were evidently highly cultured people, and while not speaking our language, they certainly knew considerable about our country, while we knew nothing about theirs. I was a little surprised at the active interest taken in our guests by Captain Battelle, who was usually so reticent and retiring, and this interest was plainly mutual. Although they were not able to converse, they could understand each other, and spent their time strolling about the ship and peering out over the calm waters of the ocean. After the airship had been gone about eight hours, our guests began to consult their watches, and look intently toward the west. Soon a whole fleet of airships came into view. In a few minutes the foremost one separated from the others, circled around, and alighted upon our deck, and one of the occupants stepped out, and as he did so, exclaimed in good English, "'Thank God you are safe! How happy I am to welcome so many of my countrymen into this world of truth, justice, and fraternity!' "'And how happy we are,' said Captain Cadot, "'to be welcomed by a fellow-countryman "'after our long voyage in these unknown waters. "'We have not looked in the face of a fellow-being "'for nearly two years, "'and we welcome you to the deck of the Ice King "'as the saviors of all that is left "'of its once numerous crew.' "'The newcomer threw his arms around the captain's neck "'and embraced him as a mother would her long-lost child, "'sobbing with sudden emotion "'until we were all shedding tears in sympathy.' Then, leaving Captain Gannot, he embraced each of us in turn. 
I never was so happy in my life, he exclaimed. I hope you will excuse me for thus giving way to my feelings. I had thought I would never again look into the face of a single human being from my own native land, and this meeting with so many overcomes me. No apologies are necessary, said Captain Gannot. We appreciate the man who has feelings and is not ashamed to show them, while we could not have any respect for the man who is destitute of feeling. Thank you, said the newcomer, and now permit me to introduce myself. My name is, or rather was, James McNair, an American-born Scotchman. Captain Gannot then introduced himself, Battelle, Houston, and myself. McNair, in return, introduced our visitors as the twin sisters Polaris and Dion, of the life-saving service, and then continued. Ever since they discovered me, almost starved on a desolate island far to the north, these self-devoted saviors of humanity have kept an especial lookout for stranded mariners from the frozen north. And since they captured your little balloon with the dispatch I translated for them, they have known that an entire crew had passed the ice barriers and they have been more than ever on the alert for an opportunity to render assistance and conduct you into a safe harbor they feared that you would be disabled by the almost perpetual calms on these oceans and be carried to the southern verge by these ocean currents which seemed to carefully avoid the land you see with all their watchfulness you have been carried nearly to the equator without being discovered and you are now fully one thousand miles from land it was indeed fortunate said captain gannot that we continued to commit dispatches to the care of the winds that is true said mcnair but it is more fortunate that you sent up dispatches just when you did for at that time the sun begins to heat the air at the southern verge and it rises to higher altitudes and the air in the vicinity flows in to fill the vacuum this produces a current of air that flows south from the northern verge it was this breeze which occurs but once a year that brought your balloon south had they been sent up at the beginning of the northern summer they would have been carried south on the outside by your equinoctial storms this is my theory it may not be a correct one but it satisfies me whether correct or not said captain gannot we know by experience that we had a northerly breeze for several days which enabled us to use our sails to some advantage but this breeze soon ceased and as we had no coal we were at the mercy of the ocean currents yes said mcnair there is but little use for sails in this inner world but with plenty of coal you would have had no difficulty in finding a safe harbor among a highly civilized people in a country where extremes of heat and cold and violent storms are unknown mcnair's remarks were cut short by the appearance on the scene of another magnificent woman who had evidently remained on the airship which had brought him to our deck and he added and now permit me to introduce you to my wife iola who wished to be among the first to welcome you to this inner world. "'Glad to meet you,' said Captain Gannot, extending his hand, "'and I hope that you will have no reason to regret this addition to your circle of so many of your husband's fellow-countrymen.' "'Thank you,' said Iola, in good English, but with a peculiar accent. "'On behalf of our people, I take pleasure in extending to you a cordial welcome to our home in Altruria, where we are making a special study of everything we can get concerning the outer world.' and happy are we rejoined the captain to be welcomed by a people where our language is not entirely unknown it will be so much easier for us to get acquainted and adapt ourselves to our new surroundings in our district said iola you will find quite a number of people who can converse in english we are teaching it in our schools 
While this conversation was going on, Polaris had stepped to the side of the ship and commenced signaling with a yellow silken flag to the fleet of airships which hovered over us. Soon one of the largest, and seemingly the most elaborately furnished, swerved around and alighted upon the deck of the Ice King. Seeing that our attention was attracted to this new movement started by Polaris, McNair said, That is our hospital, or relief ship. Polaris has called them to the assistance of your six sailors. Thank God, ejaculated Captain Gonneau, for indeed the poor fellows need the most careful attention. She and her comrades have placed us under obligations for their kindness, and that can never be repaid. I am indeed most thankful to our newfound friends. Why feel under such obligations to anyone? asked Iola. Polaris is only doing her duty, and so are her comrades. This is a duty which we owe to each other and you and your sailors will only receive that which justly belongs to you. "'But are we not under obligations to those who assist us when in trouble?' asked Captain Gonneau. "'And should we not repay them for the burdens we impose on them?' "'I do not quite understand you,' said Iola. "'You certainly are under obligations to yourself, to entertain feelings of grateful appreciation toward those who assist you in getting out of a difficult and distressing situation.' as this feeling tends to make us all better men and women, and hence more desirable members of the community. But as to repaying others for their assistance, I cannot see how we could do so, unless we were to place them under similar environments, and we certainly would not do that, simply for the purpose of securing an opportunity to do for them what they did for us. "'I do not understand you at all,' said the captain. "'When people help us, we are certainly under obligations to compensate them for their assistance with something more substantial than mere thanks.' "'Then I will try to make my meaning clear,' she said. "'We all seek happiness, but a well-ordered mind cannot enjoy real happiness while others are miserable. So in helping others into a condition where they may be happy, we are working to establish and perpetuate conditions that are essential to our own happiness.' The act itself brings its own reward. In order for people to be happy, it is necessary for them to do to others as they would have others do to them. This is one of the most simple and obvious laws that govern our relations to each other. It cannot be ignored without establishing conditions under the operations of which misery would become the normal condition of mankind, ourselves included. "'I begin to get a glimpse of your meeting,' replied the captain. "'The founder of our religion inculcated the same principles in his teachings, which we call the Golden Rule. But I have never before met with such a practical, matter-of-fact application of it to all the relations existing between the individual members of the human family. It may be that among our people a few circles to some extent apply this rule of action to a chosen few, but it is never applied to the people in general.' except by some cranky individual who in popular esteem is regarded as a fit subject for a lunatic asylum. "'It seems strange to us,' said Iola, "'that your people do not universally apply this fundamental law upon which human happiness depends, and all their relations with each other. They must certainly desire happiness, and the most ordinary intelligence ought to incline them to use the means by which they could secure happiness.' But I know from history that this law was entirely ignored by our ancestors thousands of years ago. It was first taught as a religious tenet, but for ages it has been accepted as a fundamental principle in our civilization, and as a teacher of moral philosophy in our schools it becomes my duty to inculcate these principles into the minds of the children. 
the civilization which we have now carries out in practice the fundamental humanitarian principles to which the founders of our old religious system gave expression these teachings were in many respects identical even in language with the teachings of jesus and the apostles as i find them recorded in the copy of the new testament which was among the books that my husband then a small boy saved from his father's ship which went to the bottom near the barren island where he was discovered this is indeed remarkable said the captain i had thought from the tenor of your remarks that the apostles must have penetrated this inner world and taught these doctrines and that they had taken a better hold on the minds of the people than they have in the outer world i see however that you claim an independent origin for your religious system yet you have the same fundamental doctrines how is this nothing strange about it said iola truth is truth no matter where it is found all people no matter where they live have the same faculties and the same sources of knowledge are open to all alike all the religions of the world have had their origin in some form of inspiration and these religions have in turn left their impress upon the civilizations of the world jesus of the outer world and christus of the inner world both inculcated the same fundamental truths which we have incorporated into our civilization and now teach in our schools as the fundamental natural laws which must regulate human relations before the race can attain to the one great object of existence happiness while this most interesting conversation was going on polaris dion and mcnair were busy fitting up the hospital ship and giving directions by signals to the fleet which hovered above us ropes were attached to the bow of the ice king which connected with a number of the largest airships the design was apparent by the preparations they intended to tow us to shore but this was not all electrical apparatus was placed on board and they evidently intended to use electric motor power to set the machinery in motion as soon as the preparations were well on the way mcnair broke in upon the discussion by saying Captain Gannot, we are now ready to look after your afflicted soldiers. We want to attend to them just as we would like to be attended to, if, unfortunately, we were compelled to change places with them. And with your permission, we will take charge of them at once. You not only have my permission, but my heartfelt thanks for the interest you take in them. So now, let us go below. And suiting the action to the word, Captain Gannot led the way, and we all followed. We found the ever-active Mike busy ministering to the wants of the sick and keeping up the spirits of all by his inimitable Irish wit, in which Pat O'Brien, notwithstanding his acute rheumatic pains, joined with a hearty goodwill. This buoyant Irish lad and the Herculean Irish sailor had been the life of the expedition when we were imprisoned in the ice, and but for these typical sons of Erin, our environments would have been much more gloomy. No matter how serious the outlook might be, they brought out the comic and laughable side of the picture by their mirth-provoking comments. A half-dozen persons from the relief ship at once began their examination into the condition of the sick, and Captain Gannot, turning to McNair, asked, "'Are these persons all physicians?' "'Well, yes and no,' replied he. "'In the outer world you would call them doctors, but here they are nurses.' these skilled hospital attendants understand all that has been discovered in regard to the treatment of both mind and body but what do they use asked the captain i see no sign of medicines and the usual hospital appliances they need none replied mcnair but this is something that must be learned further on yes 
interposed Iola. You will doubtless find a very different system of treating human weakness from that which I understand is adopted in the outer world by the medical practitioners. In their system of healing, they depend exclusively upon external appliances and ingredients, while we depend mainly upon arousing the internal powers of mind and spirit, which alone can exercise any absolute control over the human organism. Your system of treating the body is from without, while ours is from within, directly opposite to it. I did not at that time comprehend her meaning, neither did any of our crew. Its depth was beyond our grasp, and we found that indeed this was something to be learned further on. But as she ceased speaking, Polaris called her to one side, and after a brief consultation with the nurses, she said to Captain Ganot, The nurses report that it will require an hour or more to get the patients in proper condition for removal, and that they want to be left alone with them, and will let us know when they are ready. With this, we all returned to the upper deck to await the pleasure of the nurses. Captain Battelle, who had been an intensely interested listener, notwithstanding his retiring disposition, now moved to renew the conversation by turning to McNair and saying, "'My dear sir, did I understand you to say that the special business of Polaris and Dion is to look out for those who may be lost at sea, and render assistance as occasion may require, and especially for such as may drift in from the outer world?' Where are your men, that women are permitted to engage in these hazardous enterprises? Nothing strange about that, said McNair. As you well know, the women of the outer world take the lead in all humanitarian work, because they are naturally more sensitive and sympathetic than men. The women of this inner world are even more inclined to extend a helping hand to the distressed, and they are not handicapped by usages which restrict the influence of the woman of the outer world. Here, both sexes are placed upon terms of absolute equality, and every individual has an opportunity to find the place that is best suited to his or her inclinations. Men are also engaged in this work, but the women here, as in the outer world, are more sympathetic, and as there is nothing to prevent it, they have carried their humanitarian work to such perfection that all the oppressive conditions which afflict humanity have been well-nigh removed. To this, more than to all other causes combined, do we attribute the existence of the ideal conditions which you will find throughout this inner world. You certainly cannot think that women are out of place when they are protecting their own offspring. Not that, said Battelle. I certainly esteem it most fortunate that we have fallen into the hands of these humanity-loving women, but it all seems so strange. You have women commanding fleets in the air, and if so, why not have them navigating the ocean and commanding your armies and navies? We have no armies and navies to destroy our offspring, interrupted Iola. We know nothing of these things except from our ancient histories. When woman secured her true position in the world, she put an end to war by removing the vicious commercial, financial, and governmental systems that enabled one class of people to oppress another while greedy and domineering classes could no longer have soldiers to do their bidding poverty was abolished by securing to the whole world equal access to the unlimited productive power of the earth the women demanded peace because it prevented the slaughter of their offspring in useless wars and in order to have peace it was necessary to secure to all an equal opportunity to create wealth by their labor I do not see, said Patel, how equal rights to women would prevent governmental injustice with its consequent wars and bloodshed. 
In the outer world, some of the most bloodthirsty rulers in the annals of history have been women. And the same was true in the inner world, said Iola, until all women had secured their personal freedom from the domination of man-made laws and prerogatives. When that time came, Mother Love completed the work of human redemption. In time, the women became a unit for peace, and this thought was impressed upon their offspring, and these grew into maturity without any inclination to rule by violence, and war was abolished. And the same love of offspring, which put an end to war and all its horrors, demanded the removal of the discriminations which enabled the offspring of one woman to defraud and oppress the offspring of another woman. It was the inspiration of mother love which set the women to investigating the systems which had enriched the few at the expense of the many, and in defense of their children they united their efforts along peaceful lines to establish equitable relations in all the affairs of life. The women of that day were not more intelligent than the men, but love for their offspring gave them a deeper and more abiding sympathy for the oppressed, and this feeling, if not crushed out by the iron heel of military power, will ultimately save the people of any country from the consequences of inequitable conditions. "'I believe you are right,' said Patel, "'but this does not explain to me why women should lead in such a hazardous business as this in which Polaris and Dion are engaged.' "'It is because they desire to do so,' said McNair. "'Polaris is a sincere lover of humanity. "'She is a true womanly woman, "'and as such takes pleasure in rendering assistance "'to all who are afflicted or distressed. "'Besides, she is by education, inclination, and long experience "'an expert in aerial navigation, "'and holds her position as head of the life-saving service "'by virtue of her superior qualities.' But, said Patel, as head of a department, she might send her subordinates, and not take the hardest work on herself. It seems to me that she personally superintends everything, doing as much work as a half a dozen others ought to do. Polaris always leads, said McNair. Besides, in your case, there were special reasons why she should personally lead the search. You were exposed to peculiar dangers, and it was uncertain whether you had been carried into the Oscan or Umbrian oceans by the ocean currents. So, to guard against possible failure, she did not trust entirely to the patrols, but continued to circumnavigate the concave herself. But few persons could have kept up the incessant activity and watchfulness that she and Dion have done ever since they captured your dispatches. They were determined that you should not be carried into the stormy waters of the south, if persistent vigilance could prevent it. "'Well, thank God they were successful,' said Battelle. "'If we should live a thousand years, we could not pay them for their efforts in our behalf.' "'No thanks are required,' again interrupted Iola. "'Polaris has only done her duty, and as to pay, she could hardly comprehend what you mean by it. She doubtless felt that she was amply rewarded for all her efforts when she succeeded in finding you. Success in a praiseworthy undertaking is the only reward that any man or woman can afford to work for. She has found you, and therefore has her reward. While we can enjoy the pleasure of providing you with the comforts of a home and freedom from anxiety, toil, and danger, you will only get what our common mother nature has prepared alike for all her children— while we have been especially benefited by the opportunity it has given us of helping a brother in distress. If there is any difference, we have more reasons to be thankful than you have, as we take pleasure in contributing to the happiness of others. 
it is in very truth more blessed to give than to receive. I am not an enthusiast, responded Vittel, but I am frank to admit that I am carried away by the transcendent character of the sentiments you express in regard to our duties toward each other. But it seems to me that your grand ideal as to what a human character ought to be is so far above our fallen human nature that it can never be realized in this life. Such a character was Jesus, the Savior of mankind, as painted by our religious teachers. But this character is so very much above the human plane of development that it would be regarded as sacrilegious were anyone to attempt to be as pure, as noble, and as holy as he is said to have been. The great mass of our people, said Iola, would not understand your allusion to fallen human nature and the Savior of mankind. But I have read a number of your religious books, and from comparisons with our own ancient history, have concluded that the fall of man and his redemption through the cross are allegories which were intended to teach a wonderful truth. But, be this as it may, the character of Jesus I regard as the only true human character that I have met with in the few outer-world books that we have. The wonder is that this magnificent character has not been incorporated into all of his professed followers. After two thousand years of preaching and discipline, it is strange that you have not developed many of these characters, even surpassing his exalted standard, especially as he told his disciples that they might do greater things than he did. But, said Battelle, we are told that he was more than man. He was the Son of God, sent upon earth from his Father's home in heaven, to save fallen man. I am willing, was Iola's surprise, to admit to all this, as I understand it. We had similar characters in the olden time, who tried to save their fellow-beings from the low estate in which they lived. But a time came when the effect of their teachings was to produce a multitude of such characters, and then the entire people made one great bound upward, and now we are all saviors, whenever and wherever we find a demand for our services in that capacity. Mattel looked his astonishment as he asked, "'Is this heaven?' Am I to be brought into the presence of not one, but a world full of these godlike characters? I all smiled as she said in response. Yes, this is heaven, provided you have heaven in you, the only place where you will ever find it. And this godlike character, whom you call a savior, is also in you, as it is in every other human being, just as soon as you permit it to be developed. The spark of divinity this son of god is latent in the human soul and its efforts to make itself felt is the source of every noble pure and holy impulse to elevate our common humanity give the god that is in you a chance to develop and you will become like unto jesus a god manifest in the flesh but how am i to develop this godlike character asked patel by becoming a savior of the race to the best of your ability answered iola you were taught that it was the mission of Jesus to save the world. It is also your mission. He did his duty in his age and generation to elevate humanity, and it is your duty to make just as much of an effort in your age and generation to make the world better for your having lived in it. You cannot afford to sit down as if you had nothing to do and cast all your cares on Jesus. You have no right to impose, even if it were possible, any more burdens upon the meek and lowly carpenter of Judea. He did his duty, well and truly, and you ought to do yours. You, in common with every other human being, owe a debt to humanity, and you must pay it by your efforts to save humanity. 
from all its sins, its aches and pains, from all its multitude of woes. You cannot be released from your share of the obligation to save the world by singing, Jesus paid it all, all the debt I owe. I acknowledge, said Battelle, the justice of your criticism as applied to the churches of the outer world, but I am, or rather I was, a whaler, and they do not fit me. As a sailor, and as a whaler, I never shirked any duty or danger. I expected every other man to do his duty. I think if I had been called upon to do the work of every other man on shipboard, I would have objected to it most strenuously. On the same principle, Jesus certainly has a clear case against every one of his followers for neglect of duty. I did not expect you to take my criticism to yourself, said Iola, notwithstanding the fact that you referred to the religious system of your country as if it were your standard of faith and practice. I only sought to impress upon your mind the truth that, it seems to me, the founder of your religion intended to teach. Those who took up the work after him seem to have entirely lost sight of the purpose and spirit of his teachings. But here comes Polaris. She has something to communicate. Polaris came forward, and after a brief conference with Iola and McNair, she signaled the fleet, which began to maneuver as if aligning itself under orders, according to some well-defined plan, while McNair, addressing himself to Captain Gonneau, said, Polaris reports that the nurses are ready, and to guard against any excitement that might disturb the patients, they want everyone to embark on the airships except Mike, who will stay with the patients on the relief ship. Polaris will take Battelle and Houston in the ship with herself and sister, while Jack and yourself will take the passage with Iola and your humble servant. The rest of the fleet will tow the Ice King into port, where you can remove your baggage at your leisure. She will be taken up the Cocytus to Lake Byblis, where all will be safe, and under the charge of Pat O'Brien and Mike Gallagher. It will be a convenient distance from the home we have prepared for you, until you have become familiar with the language, customs of the country, and so forth. "'How far will it be?' asked the captain. "'Only about 150 miles,' replied McNair, "'which can easily be reached by airship or electric car in half an hour.' "'So quickly as that?' exclaimed Gonneau. "'Certainly. Three hundred miles an hour is nothing extraordinary.' End of chapter 6